This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Professor Christian Miller, who is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University and who works in contemporary ethics and philosophy of religion. Christian, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on your show. Well, thank you. I'm curious if you could give us a little bit of backstory. Um, how did you become a professor of philosophy in general, and then in particular, why contemporary ethics and philosophy of religion? Ooh, how much time do you have? That's, that could be a long story. Yeah. I'll try to give you the, the watered-down version. So I actually came across philosophy really early in my life compared to most people. So in high school, I was doing a lot of reading on my own. I came across people like C.S. Lewis, uh, who introduced me to the world of philosophy and religion. And then my senior year in high school, I had it kind of exhausted the courses in my high school and went over to a local college where for the first time I had this, you know, array of new courses I'd never seen before, including introduction to philosophy. And so I took this class uh, with a professor named Dr. Bible, uh, which you know, who, who would ever think that would happen in, in life, uh, taking introduction to philosophy with Dr. Bible, uh, and, and he just got hooked. I, I was absolutely hooked by philosophy. I took two more courses with him, so three by the time I went off to college, and basically at that point, uh, really didn't think of doing anything else. I went up to, to Princeton for undergraduate, uh, studied a wide variety of different courses, ranging from ancient Greek to contemporary um, you know, epistemology, uh, wrote my senior thesis with Gilbert Harmon on virtue ethics, which if anyone knows anything about Gilbert Harmon, he doesn't like virtue ethics. And I did like virtue ethics at the time, so that was a, a clash of opposing views, um, but, uh, but you know, made me a better philosopher in the process. But uh, to keep the story short, around junior, senior year, I know I had that, of course, that, that career question. Well, what are you gonna do with this? And to my mind, the, uh, the, the thought of going on and continuing to study philosophy and not have to pay for it in graduate school and potentially have a career where you're paid for thinking and writing about and teaching the biggest questions there are in life was just, that was, that was it. That was it for me. Uh, I said, you know, like I couldn't really find anything else appealing at the time. So applied to graduate school. Uh, my first choice was Notre Dame. I was interested both in ethics and philosophy, religion, and Notre Dame, you know, fit, fits that description very well. Uh, finished in five years, got my, my PhD working in contemporary metaethics, which is the part of ethics having to do with the foundations of morality. Where does morality come from? Is it objective? Is it relative? And the, and the like of that. And then and it was hired at Wake Forest. So the, the last part of your question was, um, why those two topics as opposed to the other ones in philosophy? I don't know if I could give you any kind of like deep story. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, why do I like you know, spinach and lots of other people don't like spinach? I, I mean, to me, epistemology just never appealed to me. I thought it was kind of dry and boring and turn, turn me off. But when I got to ethics, um, here was something that, that was just a great fit. Uh, it, it was, I mean, here's some, now I'll give you a little bit more substance to the answer. I mean, it was, it was interesting, but also applicable where I 
saw that what I was doing was not going to just stay or could or needn't stay at the realm of abstract intellectual pursuits, but had real tangible consequences in the world uh, with, with respect to ethics. And then also the same thing with philosophy religion, uh, that, that this mattered at a, uh, sure, at, at an abstract intellectual level, but also at a deeply personal level and at a broader societal level. So I, was, I think I was attracted to the practicality and the relevance of those topics, which I wasn't seeing as much in some other areas of philosophy like metaphysics or epistemology. Not to put down anyone who works in those areas or make any enemies or anything like that. I feel kind of uh, a little bit nervous saying that, but I was just, that's just my own personal autobiography. I just finished reading your uh, recent book, The Character Gap, which I highly recommend. It's very good. Um, and I, it got me thinking about some questions about character, some of which you touch on. But I thought we might get started by just um, with a question of what is character? Like when you say someone's got good character, what does that mean? Sure, sure. So I should say, just by way of context, too, on this book, The Character Gap, this is, a, this is my first attempt to do exactly what I was just talking about, which was take a lot of those issues that were more abstract in a lecture that I'm engaging with in philosophy and disseminate them at a broader, to a broader audience. So this is a trade book, a, a non-academic book written for anyone, uh, whether they have a philosophical background or not. And in the beginning of the book, chapter one, I do what a philosopher I think should do, which is clarify the terms. What are we talking about? Make sure we're not talking past each other. Let's make it clear to readers what I at least mean by character uh, so that they can see where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm thinking of character, first of all, as specifically moral character. There are different kinds of character traits. Uh, there's also intellectual character. There's, uh, there's civic character. There's uh, prudential character. There's an aesthetic character. Uh, these different traits having to do with different areas of our lives. And I'm just interested in, the, in this, this research in the moral character traits. Examples are things like, honesty, compassion, and courage. I understand them as dispositions of our minds to how we're disposed to think, feel, and act when it comes to morally relevant matters. And I think they come in two varieties, these, these moral character traits. Uh, they're the virtues, the moral virtues, like the ones I just listed before, honesty, courage and compassion and others like temperance, fortitude and gratitude. And then there are the moral vices and just take, take the virtues and invert them. For courage, you've got cowardice. For compassion, you've got wholeheartedness. For, uh, you know, for temperance, you've got intemperance. Now, to say one last thing here, and then you, of course, if you wanna you know, pr probe deeper on that, we can. Uh, I said they are dispositions to think, feel, and act. So what does that mean? Well, to, take it less abstract and make it a little bit more tangible. Let's pick one. So let's take something like compassion. A, a, a compassionate person has the character trait or as, as, part, as part of his or her character, a disposition to think in compassionate ways, to feel in compassionate ways, and to act in compassionate ways. So the thinking could involve things like, um, you know, not saying this is necessary, but these could be features of a compassionate person's thinking things like, um, it's important to help other people, um, or it's good to be a compassionate person, uh, or 
that person needs help. The feeling side of it, the motivational side of it, well, that involves things like uh, caring about others for their own sake, wanting to help someone else, even if I wouldn't benefit in the process. Uh, and then the behavior, well, that's the, the expression or the outward manifestation of the internal character. So uh, these, these thoughts and these feelings give rise to actual behavior like stopping and helping someone change a flat tire or helping someone with, who's lost or making a donation to a charity or whatever the, the situation might involve. So to, to, to wrap it up and I'll stop, uh, I think of character as having these two varieties, virtues and vices. And I think of uh, wh whether it's a virtue or a vice, there are at least three central components a thinking component, a feeling component, and a behavioral component. One of your theses I found uh, quite puzzling, and perhaps this is because I'm an optimist. Uh, one of your claims is that people aren't particularly virtuous or vicious. Um, they're somewhere in the neutral zone, you might say. Right. Now, this is a tendency claim. You know, you're not saying this about every single individual person. Right. But I'm curious why you think that, and I, I realize this is a huge question, but I wonder if you could touch on a little bit why you think we're somewhere in that gray, that moral gray zone. Right, so uh, let me say some things. This is a huge question in the character gap. It's, it occupies about five chapters. Let me say some things, and then you can just inter interject, and, and we can go down a different number of different trails here. Uh, you're right, first of all. My view is that most people, now if we're gonna be, uh, if I'm going to be really careful about that, I'm going to say most people today or most contemporary people in the West uh, do not have moral virtues or moral vices as part of their character. Now, why do I have those qualifications? Why the most? Why the contemporary? And why the West? Well, when I came to that conclusion, it was on the basis of looking at a wide array of psychological research. So it wasn't using you know, armchair philosophy wasn't consulting the news. It wasn't, uh, you know, looking at religious texts, although that's, those are all fine sources too. I was uh, consulting hundreds of experiments that have been done in the last few decades by psychologists in controlled situations, which uh, involved participants having morally relevant choices and seeing how they ended up deciding and acting. So if that's my data source, well, it's contemporary. And most of these studies involve Western participants. So that's why it's, it's not you know, global. Um, and the most is that uh, there's, always, there's never a uniform behavior in these studies. There's always individual differences. Um, and I can't make any you know, broad claims about everyone from these studies. What it seems to me is going on is that there's a bell curve where most people are in what we might call murky middle or have what I call mixed, mixed character, mixed traits. But there could be outliers on both ends. So I'm perfectly fine saying that there are, or at least could be some virtuous people. And we can point to some examples of, of our favorite moral saints or heroes like Abraham Lincoln or Harry Tubman. On the other end, I think it's, you know, we can be quite confident to say that there are some moral villains out there in the world. We can, you know, our Hitlers and our Stalins. So I'm, I'm not, I don't think, overreaching too much there. Uh, but those people don't uh, 
map onto most of us, or more specifically, the, their character doesn't seem to reflect the character most of us have. Now, why? Well, in these studies, um, and these are studies of helping, I primarily look at studies of helping, harming, cheating, lying, and stealing. Uh, what we find, uh, or at least I find, in my interpretation of the results, is that in a um, variety of situations, people act quite well. And a variety of other situations, people tend to act poorly. And what explains the difference in their behavior, or what explains their behavior in general, are features of their psychology, which I do not think of as either virtuous or vicious. So first we have this behavioral pattern of good behavior in some situations and bad behavior in some other situations. That alone doesn't fit the cross-situational consistency I would expect of a virtuous person or of a vicious person. But then at a deeper level, what explains their behavior are mental tendencies which I don't see as virtuous or vicious. Now, that's the abstract answer. Let me, if, I, if, I'm, if it's okay with you, try to explain that at a much more concrete level with a, a couple studies. That, that's not good. Um, so here's a, here's a, 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 a maybe not a, a really dramatic or, or really significant helping task, but it's a study involving a helping task that I think, helps illustrate the point I'm making. It's a study by the, the psychologist Robert Barron, where he had a group of people in a shopping mall who didn't know that they were part of the study. They, they were just shoppers going past clothing stores. And then they were confronted with a helping task. So an actor came up to them and asked for their help. And then the question was, did they help or not? At no point did they know they were part of a study. And in general, their helping rates were very low, uh, less, less than 20%, around 20%. I, I have to look at the actual numbers. Another group of shoppers was passing by Mrs. Fields Cookies or Cinnabons. So I hope all listeners are familiar with that and, and can visualize that in their minds and call to mind the smell from Mrs. Fields Cookies and Cinnabons. Then uh, after they had passed those, or one of, one of those stores, uh, they were approached by the same actor, same helping task. And here, the helping percentage was in the 60s. So you have roughly 20s in the one group, roughly 60s in the other group. That alone is striking. I mean, it's just very, very surprising. Um, and also, you know, right off the bat, doesn't seem to me to fit the expectations of a, help, of a compassionate person. I expect compassionate people, if they're going to help, it would have been in both groups. Or if they're not gonna help, because maybe they don't think it's a situation requires them to help, then they wouldn't help in both groups. But probe deeper now, that's the, that's the behavioral, that's an illustration of the behavioral inconsistency. But what explains that result? Well, uh, we don't know for sure, but psychologists have tossed out you know, different explanations and you know, have supported different explanations, just like you know, they do in all kinds of areas of our, of our psychology. And one leading explanation is this. The smell put those shoppers in a good mood. Uh, that triggered or gave rise to a desire to maintain the good mood. And then, not consciously perhaps, but subconsciously, 
the shopper would have been inclined to do things which would maintain the good mood, whatever that might be. Now, again, I'm not saying this is the correct explanation. I'm just saying it's a, it's a leading explanation out there. You may not buy it, you may buy it, whatever. Let's suppose it's right for the moment. This would fit the data, right? I mean, so what's going on with the Mrs. Fields cookies? The smell puts shoppers in a good mood. They wanna maintain the good mood. Now here comes an opportunity to help and the helping opportunity is perceived as a means to maintain the good mood. By helping, I can continue this glow of good feeling that I'm having. And so the people were more likely to help as a result. Now, how does that fit into the story I have to offer here? Um, well, you know, it's a, if that's right, if that's what's going on, that's, oh, it's just one study. It doesn't prove anything. Um, it's just one uh, psychological explanation. It's not an explanation of everything, every, of all of our moral psychology, of course, but it is an interesting example of what I have in mind because on the one hand, there are some positive aspects to it. People helps more. People are more inclined to help. Helping went up. It wasn't that uh, there was just indifference across the board. On the other hand, the helping was not for the right kind of reasons, not the virtuous reason, not compassionate reasons. The reasons, if you buy the story, were self-interested. They're egoistic. They're, I'm going to help so as to maintain my good mood. And that's not the, the virtuous motivational component of compassion that one needs to have to be a compassionate person. So um, I conclude, not, not just from that, but, you know, don't, don't, don't think, oh, well, he read one study and he's got this one idea and then he just paints everybody in the world with this one idea. I conclude from that, I conclude from other studies like the Milgram shock experiments, which we can talk about, the Darling Batson, uh, Good Samaritan study, the group effect studies from the 1960s, whole wide array of other studies, cheating, lying studies, uh, that similar positive and negative tendencies. I conclude that most of us have a mixed character, some good sides and some bad sides. Well, it's probably good to leave off some of those studies um, so you don't spoil too much of your great book. Right. <laughs> well, um, it's up to you. You're in charge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I take it you're, I mean, I, you know, you're, you're right. There are plenty of these studies. And, you know, if, if you're curious, you know, go get the book. But suppose you've convinced me um, that, that people are, people tend not to buy, to be either virtuous or, or vicious. I might think, okay, who cares, Christian? I mean, who cares that people don't have good character? Why, why should that matter? Right. Why does good character matter? Yeah. So, that was, so there are a couple of questions there. Um, so uh, one is why in general does character matter? And then there's um, why should I care about whether I have mixed character or other people have mixed character? Um, so let me, let me say several things. First, uh, one reason to care about your own case is that, it's a um, self-awareness reason because most people also have an inflated sense of their own virtue. So there are these studies which ask people to assess from one to five, how good are, are you or how virtuous are you with five being very virtuous and one being not virtuous at all. Uh, and, and most people put themselves around a four out of five. 
on good character in general and on particular character traits, like honesty. And this has cross situational consist I mean, uh, cross cultural consistency to it. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Um, so one reason is just to better understand who we are and realize that we might have an overly inflated and mistaken picture of our own character. We also, uh, by if if I'm right, I think it's helpful to have a better, more realistic understanding of other people's character. Um, where we, whereas we might think that people are more honest than they really are, that's like it's a good thing to know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's a good thing to know uh, that uh, we may not want to be as trusting of our students, right, or our colleagues as we might have initially been disposed to be if we thought that they were moderately honest, for example. But the question you, you landed on at the end there was, well, why does good character matter? Um, so so if, we, if I'm right that we most, or at least most of us are not virtuous, we don't have the virtues, so what? Um, why not just stick, stay where we are and instead of working towards developing a better character? And that's a, that's a really big question too. You're, you're, you're hitting me with all these, these, these heavy duty ones right off the bat. Um, I don't think there's any easy answer to that. I think there's multiple reasons one could give, some of which are more persuasive than others. Uh, and it also matters what the target audience is. So if the target audience are, is people who are completely skeptical of morality, uh, who just have you know, written off the morality altogether, that's one thing. If the target audience is people who care about morality, have not given much thought to character, and you're trying to get them to pay attention to more to character and convince them to work harder at becoming a, a better person, that's another thing. So I'll take the second group as a target audience. I don't, I have kind of pessimistic expectations about being able to convince the complete moral skeptic. Um, so I'm not going to try that, <laughs> try to do that today. Um, but, but just your, you know, your, your ordinary person who maybe doesn't hear much about character, is introduced to character, and then says, you know, why is it important for me to be, develop a better character? I'll say a couple things to that person. One, the, the crudest, but often most, uh, the best one to get the foot in the door is a self-interested reason. It actually can make your life better. Uh, there's lots of, and it's not just me like hoping this is true, wishful thinking. There's actually empirical research finding links between particular character traits and good outcomes, like uh, imp improved mood, longer lifespan, greater achievements, better health, these kind of things. So since we often want those good outcomes, and if we think that a good character is a reliable means to them, or more so than neutral character or a bad character, then that's a reason to pursue good character. It's, it's a reason, it's maybe not the best reason. I mean, I'm not a fan of egoistic reasons forever. So it's a good foot in the door and get people taking it seriously, but I hope at some point we move beyond that, that kind of, those kind of reasons. Some other ones could include these. Uh, good character is good for society. Um, I think we, if we wanna live uh, in certain kind of societies, we would want there to be good character to enable those societies, like a just society. We wanna live in a just society, we want people to have the virtue of justice. We wanna live in a 
caring society. We want people to have the virtues of compassion. I think another reason is religious. So for people who are religious, all the major world religions take character very seriously and uh, have lots of to offer as far as guidance for why it's important to develop a good character and how to do it practically. And then the final one I'll, I'll end with, well, I can't, sorry, two more. One, one real quickly is I, I think good character is just intrinsically good. Uh, the, the virtues are in good in and of themselves, even if uh, they didn't have good outcomes or consequences. And then the final one I'll, I'll end with, I promise uh, I'll stop here, uh, is it's more emotional. And this is the kind of reason that philosophers tend not to point to, but that at a per persuasive level, it's often more effective than more abstract arguments or reasons, which is uh, holding up for inspection the life of a virtuous person, making that life very salient and tangible, and hoping that it has an emotional grip on the audience, that they can see Harry Tubman's acts of courage, for example, and admire what she did, but not just admire at a distance, but admire in such a way that it gives rise to a feeling of emulation, a desire to want to be like that person. Not in every respect, but in a certain, a certain key respect, to be more courageous myself, to make my character improve to better reflect her character, as opposed to bringing her character down to my level. So those are a variety of reasons why I think good characters important. Yeah, you, you, these, are the, these are some of the reasons that you mentioned in the book. Um, I wanted to say a, a few, I wanted to follow up on a few things about each of them, but without spending too much time because we're kind of limited for time. Um, the first one that you, that, that jumped out at me was the intrinsic argument, that the moral value or moral virtues or character, excuse me, is intrinsically valuable. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, now, maybe this is me getting a little too uh, in the weeds, but I'm very skeptical when philosophers wheel out intrinsic value. The reason I am is not because I don't think there's any such thing as intrinsic value, something being valuable in and of itself or for its own sake, um, but rather that it just seems like a too easy answer to, it, it's sort of like when, when you ask scientists or philosophers about explanations and they, they wheel out parsimony or simplicity, right? It's just, it's, um, I'm, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna make that note. I'm, I'm, this isn't in particular aimed at, at you. It's just it's, whenever I hear the word intrinsic, I think, okay, but that seems maybe too easy of an answer. Um, but what really caught me was when you, when you talk about um, good character being admirable. So I thought, okay, but isn't it the case that in some sense, especially if you're talking to someone who's skeptical about good, character, good moral character, I want other people to have good moral character, right? I don't really, I mean, if I'm selfish and I want to sort of do my own thing, I'm not motivated by moral goodness or moral reasons per se. I do have a self-interested reason you keeping your contracts, your word, um, not lying to me, that sort of thing. But it's not clear to me that Admirable in the other, yes, but maybe not admirable in self, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, that's why I, I, led, I led off by saying uh, it depends a lot on who the audience is. Uh, so I, I, I aimed my discussion at people who I was hoping 
are already in the mole game, so to speak, uh, already care about more considerations. Uh, if you really got the skeptic in mind, sure, uh, you, can, you can put up that person, that Harriet Tubman to the skeptic, and a Harriet, Harriet Tubman could be admirable maybe from a distance. Yeah, that it's good that the world contains such people. You could maybe even acknowledge that, although that's, that's already uh, a significant concession to moral value. Um, but, but the skeptic could say, well, that, but that doesn't have any implications for me. I'm not inclined to become, change my life so that I'm more courageous than I was before. Uh, I, that's, that, that's I, I, I take your point. Uh, I'm just gonna concede that. Um, I, I don't really think it's worth, it was, at least for a trade book for a popular audience, it was worth my time engaging with these moral skeptics. Uh, because I was assuming, I was hoping, maybe against my, the teachings of my own book, that people were better, better coming from a better place initially uh, than than that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's that. I'm just all by way of saying I, I grant your point. Well, I, I wouldn't press the point so much because I, I don't really know how much people really are in their heart of hearts moral skeptics and relativists. Part of the, I mean, what's rattling around in the back of my brain, I guess, is if you teach ethics enough, you run into a lot of students. They seem to always be engineering students. I don't know why. Who are are very skeptical of anything you can't test in a lab. Ethics would be in this group, religion, morality, um, sometimes aesthetic value. Um, so so I, I more have them in mind. Um, you know, some, some of the people who read your book are probably gonna be, you know, maybe hard-nosed scientists who kind of think they're above that sort of thing. But, you know, hmm. Okay, um, that, yeah, that's, that might take us in a, so you, you, you interestingly introduced two positions there, a skeptic and a relativist. Um, so I, I think of those as different. So I think of a, a skeptic as kind of like a moral nihilist who thinks that there's just no morality at all. Um, no, no moral values whatsoever. Uh, and I think of a relativist as someone who does accept that there are moral values or moral truths, they're just relative to individuals or societies. Uh, and, and so they, they're, they're in the moral game, so to speak, but they have their own very uh, particular take on where morality comes from and how morality works. Uh, Interesting that you said that uh, about your students or students you come across. And I can see the engineering angle, yes, right. I, my experience is kind of the other side of it, which is a lot of students tend to be relativists. Uh, they, they, that seems to be the kind of default assumption coming into introduction of philosophy that, you know, who are you to, to say what's right or wrong or how can you judge this other group um, you know, what gives you the authority, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then over the course of a week or two, when we, we, I don't, I never try and convince students or indoctrinate them or anything like that. I just lay out the different arguments and let them make up their own minds. But they see for the first time some of the objective morality ideas and arguments and some of the objections against relativism. And a lot of them back off pretty quickly and, and are, uh, not as happy with their default relativism they started with the class with. Um, now, well, how does this tie up back to the book? Well, one thing I really regret about the book is that I didn't spend more time talking about the foundations of morality, uh, objective morality, relative morality. Maybe, maybe it was a good thing, maybe it was not, um, but it comes up all the time in discussions afterwards. People wanna know 
um, where, where, it's my, where it's my framework and why didn't I talk about this? Um, and I did, I have to say, I presuppose a, an objective morality, an objective framework, uh, where uh, by that, for, for the listeners who are not familiar with this terminology, it means that there's a, an, a, a moral code or set of moral truths that exist independent of human beings. Human beings didn't create them in the first place, and we cannot change them, even if we so desire. We can choose to live our lives in accordance with them or not, but that's up to us uh, to, to, to conform to them. But we didn't put them in place. Either they uh, have always existed uh, independently of anything, or maybe a divine being put them into place. So a lot of philosophers, most, most philosophers, I think, share this kind of framework, and a lot, a lot of undergraduates don't. And I, I presuppose that framework in the book. Uh, I didn't take any steps to argue against relativism. Um, I was hoping when I wrote the book to just avoid that controversy and say as much as I could to any reader without you know, turning readers off. So the fewer controversies I had to engage with, the better. Um, but in retrospect, maybe I should have tackled that one. I wanted to get to an objection that I didn't see in your book, um, and for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, there's a lot of material to cover and only have so many pages. Um, but something that, that gets left out of a lot of these discussions, which I find striking. So I'm assuming, and, and you seem to agree in the book, and you might talk about this in your answer. I'm assuming good character to the extent that we have it um, has to be cultivated. We have to attend to our environments, uh, be cognizant of what we're attending to psychologically. There's different features of, of different aspects of developing good character. And it seems like there's lots of opportunity costs there, right? So for the time that, and the time and effort it takes me to develop good moral character, I could be doing other things. Uh, if, if we think of it sort of like, you know, playing the, roughly like playing the piano or driving, or the kinds of things that it takes time to learn. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a, a sort of diminishing marginal returns to character development. Like, is there a point where, I'm thinking of the self-interested person, right? You're appealing to someone and you're saying, you know, gratitude will, you know, improve your life, maybe your life outcome. Or maybe you'll enjoy life more if you're more grateful, let's say. And the person might respond, yeah, to a point, right? But does that get you all the way to where you want to go? Or do I sort of bump up against diminishing marginal returns halfway there? I could be doing other things, my character's good enough, that kind of yeah, that's, that's a really intriguing question. I, I tell you, truth, I've not really thought it through that in that much detail. So thank you for raising it. Um, I, I appreciate it. My initial inclination is to say, uh, I don't know if, it, if it's uh, going to be a uniform situation here or whether it's going to be more individual case by case matter. Uh, the returns might differ depending on the individual. Uh, my second thought is, uh, I'm okay if that were to turn out to be the case, that there were diminishing marginal returns in the sense of uh, the egoistic benefits aren't as great, the better one character, one's character gets, at least as compared to they, where they were initially. So the egoistic benefits of going from, say, mixed character to weak virtue might be great, from going from weak virtue to moderate virtue might be you know, somewhat mediocre, and from going to moderate virtue to strong virtue might be the lowest of all. Um, that 
Uh, that's an empirical hypothesis. I mean, it, it's, it, it would need to be tested if, the, if that could be tested empirically. Uh, we'd have to kind of see how the, the data turned out. Um, if we do armchair speculation, my speculation would be, uh, yeah, I bet, the, I bet that's going to be true with respect to at least some benefits. Uh, suppose it is true, let's just say conditionally, if that were to be the case, what would follow? Uh, one thing that strikes me is that uh, I could, I'm hoping that by then the person, even if they were initially motivated by self-interested gain, would have come to see value in virtue independent of self-interest. So to put that in another way, initially what might have attracted them to becoming a better person are the things I mentioned earlier, like, well, it might make me better at my job, or I might you know, have a better outlook on the world, greater subjective well-being, life satisfaction, and so forth. But after several years of going down this path, one might, one perception might change and one might come to see value in being honest, for example, in and of itself, even if there isn't a benefit for the individual. Now, one could appreciate or care about values in a new way, in a different way than one did before. Um, so that uh, even if the self-interested benefits aren't as great, the meaning and, well, the, uh, the value and importance to living that life might e become even more apparent than ever was before. Um, I, could see, I could see the world in a different way, and I could see what I'm doing as really valuable and important, regardless of whether I benefit myself or not. In fact, and that's the last point, um, to the extent that one continues to remain at the level of pursuing self-interested benefits, that might be an obstacle to actually becoming deeply virtuous. So one might have to move beyond that stage if one hopes to get to deeper levels of virtue. A compassionate person can't become deeply compassionate just on the grounds of self-interested benefits. If it's the case that necessarily the motivational profile of a compassionate person is selfless, a compassionate person cares about others for their own sake and what's good for them, irrespective of whether a compassionate person benefits or not. So to really become deeply compassionate, one's going to have to move past the benefits. And so if they diminish, that's okay. In fact, they diminish in importance, that's okay. In fact, they better diminish in importance if one has any hope of becoming deeply virtuous. So you've talked a little bit about moral character and why we typically don't measure up. And I'm curious if you could say a little bit about the things you talk about in your book as to how to cultivate good character. You mentioned things yeah. like um, bringing pitfalls to mind, like you know, be, be, you know, making yourself aware of, of where you can fall short, right? Bringing yeah. these things to mind, or cultivating your environment, like attending to where you spend your time, who you hang out with. Uh, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that and really what, is, what are the prospects best case scenario? Like what can, what can those sorts of tools really do? Yeah, yeah. So the, st the starting point for me is, um, you know, first we, we clarify what character is, that's the starting point. We've talked about why it's important. 
We've also talked about why I think most of us don't have good character. And at that point, we could just leave the discussion alone and just move on. But there's this last, you know, this last section of the book which says, okay, even if we don't have, you know, most of us don't have good character, myself included, there's hope for improvement. So that assumes right off the bat, before we even get to the strategies, that our character is malleable. It can change over time. That's used to be something of a controversial issue in psychology. Some people, especially in some older decades, thought the character was fixed and you just, you, you got what you got and there's, you know, tough, tough for you. Um, fortunately, that's not the case and there's good empirical evidence that our character can be altered. But uh, no surprise, perhaps, it's not an overnight business. So character change is real, but it's neither linear nor immediate. Uh, in a sense of linear, uh, rarely do we improve our character in a straight line, either up or down. It's often a jagged process of you know, improvement and setbacks. And not immediate in the sense that I can't like flip a switch or just will myself into being an honest person overnight. And that's you know, no surprise here. So what can we do? Uh, in the book, I talk about a variety of strategies. I go through a couple, which I think are not very promising, which we can leave to the side unless you want to take them up. And a couple, which I think are more promising. I won't go through all of them now, uh, but just maybe I'll just mention a couple. Um, one is looking to these exemplars. Uh, we've already mentioned moral exemplars, these moral heroes and saints, and trying to find someone in one's own life who can be a role model for virtue, at least to a greater extent than one, is, one already is. So I might examine my own character and see one area of weakness is courage. I tend to be a not very courageous person when, I, when, I, when courage is required. And then I might try to find someone who is an exemplar of courage to pattern my life after and become more like that person. Whether that's a historical exemplar like Harry Tubman, whether it's a contemporary exemplar like a you know, popular figure, a soldier, whatever, or just uh, someone in your neighborhood, a community member, uh, someone you work with, even a family member or friends, that person can have a significant psychological impact in improving character. And we, I can talk more about how that process works. But just, that's just the idea. A second idea, second strategy here, is uh, using more reminders to help us keep our priorities straight. So a lot of the times we know what the right thing to do is, and we have good values, we, you know, for example, we think it's cheating is wrong and uh, lying is wrong and so forth. And yet in the moments we give in to temptation and do the wrong thing. More reminders are very helpful tools to keep our perspective where it needs to be on what's morally important. Those could be things like uh, a reading to start your day, a diary to reflect back on the day, text messages that come to your phone a couple times during the day, um, someone in your life who reminds you of something, who asks them to remind you of something regularly. So uh, this has been found to be effective, for example, when it comes to things like the honor code at universities. Honor codes, if employed rigorously, can serve as more reminders, which really diminish student cheating subsequently on tests and papers. And then the last one I'll mention just, just uh, in the interest of time is increased self-awareness, which is what you were talking about, the pitfalls. So 
uh, this is what I call getting the word out, which is using uh, the, the, the best tools available to you, like books and studies and uh, stuff you read on the internet, uh, to gather information about your own character so that you're more aware of pitfalls in your character that you might not have been aware of in the first place. So for instance, um, prior to the 1960s and the Milgram studies, people were not nearly as aware of how powerful our desire to obey authority figures can be. And in the shock, the famous shock experiments from the 60s, Milgram was able to get participants to go all the way to a lethal level of shock under pressure from an authority figure and kill, or so they thought, the participants thought, kill an innocent person in the next room. Power of authority. Uh, that's something we may not be aware of until we learn about this kind of research. And we say, well, that's probably true of me too. A pitfall of my character is likely that I'm way too likely disposed, <clears throat> way too disposed to obey an authority figure, regardless of whether that authority figure is commanding me to do something morally legitimate or not. So greater self-awareness uh, has also been experimentally tested as a way to bring about better behavior, and there are some promising results there too. So to sum it up, uh, more exemplars and heroes, more reminders, and increased self-awareness using the, the best uh, research and, and tools that are out there today are three strategies which I think are, are pretty promising. When it comes to developing a good moral character, do you think religious believers and practitioners have an advantage over their secular counterparts? Uh, it, I would say it, it depends. That's, that's a very broad question. And I, I'm going to give you the weaselly answer of it. It depends. Uh, so the context here is that in the last chapter of the book, I take up that question of religion and character. And I particular spend quite a bit of time looking at one particular religion. So you, you know, you could do this in different ways. You could just go like real snapshot religion by religion by religion. What does it have to say about character and what can we learn from it? Or you can kind of go in deep into a little bit, you know, in some detail in one religion. I thought the scattershot approach was just so superficial, trying to talk about Taoism for two pages and Confucianism for two pages and Christianity for two pages. And I, I chose the, the second approach of going in detail with one religion. And I chose Christianity because it was, I thought it would be most familiar to readers in the West. Um, and it's the one I was most familiar with myself. So I'm getting to your question, but I'm giving, giving the background context here. Um, in that chapter, what I do is I talk about how it, within Christianity, there are a number of resources, specific well, there are a number of resources that Christian believers can avail themselves of to cultivate a better character. But I'm very clear to emphasize, or I try to be, not everyone is, you know, uh, some of the people give me a hard time, but I try to be very clear to emphasize that um, you do not have to be, in my view, religious at all to develop a good character. It's perfectly possible, and in fact, actual, that there have been atheists who have a good character. And of course, we also know that there are plenty of people who are religious who have bad character. So there's no necessity claim here. Uh, at best, we could talk about general tendencies. Okay. Uh, so with those things in mind, um, there are a number of practices that you see in religions like Christianity 
practices like uh, fasting, practices like uh, tithing, which is uh, committing a certain amount of your income to charity, practices like prayer, <clears throat> practices like reading moral texts and, and religious texts, which seems to me to have clear character implications. And so if those practices are carried out well, I would predict that people who follow those practices would grow in good character. Now that's, you know, I, I have some qualifications, right? If, <laughs> if the practices are carried out well, and people are immersed in those practices for an extended period of time, it's not just like going to church one Sunday and then that's, you're good to go, um, then I would expect improvement of, in character. Those practices have secular analogs. Uh, you could have a secular analog of confession, for example. You could have a secular analog of reading religious texts. And so there would be secular analogs, which are practices which, if carried out well, and you're immersed in for a long time, you would expect people to grow in character as well. Now, what about the comparative claim? You know, how, which, which one does better? Here, I would say we, we don't know. Um, we don't have the, the, the best kind of evidence to make those kind of assessments. Why is that? Um, well, what we have is a lot of behavioral evidence about, say, comparative donations to charity. People who regularly attend religious services versus people who never attend religious services. Comparatively, how much do they give to charity? Well, turns out the religious group gives significantly more to charity than the secular group. And this is regardless of whether it's a religious charity or a secular charity. The religious group, the committed, the serious religious group, tends to outperform the non-religious group. And this shows up again and again in the sociology of religion literature on a wide variety of measures, ranging from volunteering to uh, uh, taking care of one's health, uh, to lifespan, to uh, performance in school, to drug use, criminal behavior, uh, you know, again, 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 the you know, serious religiously committed person seems to you know fare better other things being equal than the secular group suppose that's right and it, it doesn't it doesn't show up in every measure but in a lot of the measures suppose that's right uh that's something that's interesting but first of all <clears throat> excuse me it's not the same thing as saying that they have better character right <clears throat> it doesn't uh automatically show that and what one re, re, well let me just stick with that point it doesn't automatically show they have better character why well one reason is that it doesn't probe motivation so even if the behavior is better we'd have to go deeper into the psychology to understand the motivation and if the motivation tends to be things like to gain rewards in the afterlife that's egoistic motivation we don't have virtue yet um, i you know <clears throat> i hope that it's not just egoistic motivation, but until we have better data 
we can't really make confident claims, I don't think. Well, for my last question, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. So you wrote a book on character, and I'm curious what you learned from the book that you apply to your own life, if, if anything, or more generally in the process of, of thinking about moral character generally. Is there something you've learned over that course of time that you now apply in your own life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, ho I hope so. I think we could get back ashamed of spent all these years. I've, I've been working on character for 10 years and to think that I hadn't had learned anything about my own life um, and hopefully doing something to improve my life. Um, let, me, let me give you two things. One, uh, it's definitely helped me by reading this empirical research be aware of blind spots in my own perception of my character. So areas which I never paid attention to before or thought I might be doing pretty good. Now that I'm aware of this research, I think, oh, wait, I really need to pay more attention to that. So for example, the, the authority, the obedience to authority, which I already touched on. I, I never gave that any thought until I read the Milgram studies. And now I think, you know, uh, if I'm being commanded to do something by an authority figure, I should be much more cautious in evaluating what the command is and assessing whether it's morally legitimate or not before following through with the command. Um, same thing with the group effect, which is another body of research I talk a lot about. Uh, you know, in groups, people tend not to help in an emergency situation. This is a you know, long, long, well-established phenomenon. Uh, there's diffusion of responsibility, there's fear of embarrassment. And so someone could be writhing in pain or screaming or whatnot. And if no one else around is helping, you're not likely to help yourself. So by becoming aware of that research, I now am thinking, well, if, if I'm in a group, I'm, I, 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 before I was aware of the research, I would have thought, oh, yeah, of course I would help. You know, who cares whether I'm in a group or not? Of course I would help. Now I'm thinking, wait a second, I probably wouldn't. So I'd be more cognizant of whether I'm in a group or not. I'd be paying not as much attention to what other people are doing and focus on the cry for help and see whether it's a legitimate cry and try and step up to the plate even if others are not helping. So that's, that's one area where I, I think it's mattered a lot. Um, the other answer I'll give you is with respect to being a father. So I have, uh, I have three small kids. And uh, before, I, you know, before I got into the character research, I didn't have any kids. Uh, and having children while doing the character research has been eye-opening because uh, it's amazing to me how my character is reflected in my children's, at least outward behavior, and how, what it, how important being a good role model is. Uh, and in fact, the ways they help to illustrate to me the way my character falls short because they mirror back to me the bad sides of my character, which I don't like to see. And then I feel bad because I'm the one who's probably demonstrating it to them in the first place. Um, so both within my own self-awareness and then also with respect to my parenting, it's made a lot of difference, I hope. The book, The Character Gap. The author, Professor Christian Miller. Christian, thanks again for coming on the show, it was great. Thanks so much for your great questions, really appreciate it.